my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys had a terrific weekend. Uh, great show for today. I was joined by Stephen Gutowski, founder of The Reload, and we discussed all things gun policy, uh, changes to gun policy last year, what, what we're expecting to see happen uh, here in 2024, um, the latest goings-on at the NRA, and, and, and all that stuff. Um, it was great talking about nothing but guns. Uh, a lot of great information from Steve and him and his team over at the Reload really do the Lord's work, um, reporting uh, soberly and honestly and factually about gun policy. And I always enjoy talking to him. So I think you guys will enjoy it. Before we get to Steven, you guys, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to subscribe. If you are an Apple user, please take a few seconds to leave us a five star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash The No Gimmicks Podcast. Right. Without further ado, the great Steven Katowski. <laughs> All right, guys, we're here at the great Stephen Gutowski, founder of The Reload, over at thereload.com. In my opinion, the very best site for all of the latest news regarding gun policy and the firearms industry. Uh, Stephen, my brother, thanks so much for coming back on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. So, a ton to talk about. I'm, I'm excited for this show because, you know, we do talk about gun policy and stuff, but it's usually, you know, 10 seconds at a time to get to whatever the latest shit show in D.C. is, you know, whatever the, the news cycle is providing us. But uh, we're going to stick to just guns today. Um, we're going to get to what's going on with the NRA and, uh, and a couple other issues like that later. But um, first, I thought it'd be great for you to talk us through a few of the noteworthy court rulings or, or changes on gun policy that happened either over the last year or what we can expect uh, in, the, in the coming months here in 2024. Obviously, this is a national audience, and I'd guess 90 percent plus Maybe more of, of the listeners are gun owners, so uh, a lot of stuff that will affect a lot of people. So uh, I don't really know where to start, so uh, take it away, my brother. <laughs> well, probably the biggest thing on a national front is going to be the Rahimi case at the Supreme Court, which is a case they already had oral arguments in last year, at the end of last year. And we'll, I don't know. Experts seem to think that they're, you know, the people I've spoken to seem to think that they're going to hand that down um, earlier in the year this year. Uh, usually the court will wait until like the very end of the session to uh, announce controversial cases. Now this might not, it's not going to be up there in terms of controversial with something like Bruin or, you know, uh, Dobbs, right? The, those big cases that they did a couple years ago, uh, because this, this case is, uh, I think one that isn't going to be uh, as like a split decision necessarily. It's probably going to be more um, there's going to be more consensus on the court, I think, on this one. And it's it's one that's not likely to affect a lot of people in the real world um, directly from the actual ruling. Because Rahimi, what that case is about is uh, domestic violence restraining orders. Because under federal law, if you have a domestic violence restraining order taken out against you, you cannot possess firearms, right, during the length of that restraining order. Right. Uh, now, this is not an insignificant thing, right? It's uh, There's a whole civil liberties aspect to all this, and uh, this is a Second Amendment claim. The claim is that this 
law violates the Second Amendment on its face, meaning that there's no possible constitutional application of it. And um, and so, you know, it'll have it'll be significant because we'll hear more about what the court thinks of the Second Amendment and how right. to judge cases based off of it. And uh, so it'll be a sort of a, an extension on the Bruin test that was that was handed down two years ago in in the, the Bruin case. But, uh, you know, as far as practical impact, um, direct impact, there's not that many people subject to domestic violence restraining orders. That's all I'm getting at. It doesn't. Right. It's, it's not like um, like the Bruin case. The practical impact was huge and the, the sort of long term impact as well, because the practical impact was that it changed the gun carry laws in eight very big states. About a quarter of the population lives there. And so uh, the, the, the way that they issue gun carry permits was completely reworked. Uh, and so a lot more people can now get carry permits in uh, places like New York and New Jersey and Ma Massachusetts, California, Hawaii, uh, Maryland. Uh, you know, this is places that had what were called shall, uh, may issue laws, where it was sort of a subjective standard as to mm -hmm. whether somebody would get the permit. That changed with that ruling. And then also they handed down the, their new test, which is based on history and tradition, right? They, they say, you know, you have to look back at the founding era to understand what gun restrictions would, would, would have been allowed at the time. And then you have to analogize off of those to see whether or not a modern restriction is constitutional under the second amendment, it's sort of an originalist right. view of the second amendment. Right. And so that's, that was huge for both those reasons. Rahimi is going to be something where it has an effect on people, probably with domestic violence restraining orders, which is a more limited population, obviously, but also could be very substantial because of it's going to expound on that Bruin test. Like what is, you know, how do we judge whether or not an older law is analogous to a modern law? You know, they went over this a bit in Bruin, but there's been a lot of disagreement in the lower courts on that point. And I think you're probably going to get something like uh, some sort of dangerousness standard put in through Rahimi, where they're going to say, you know, Rahimi was, he's found to be dangerous and therefore he can be disarmed. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll go through what the standard for that is. And it does, you know, it really doesn't seem like Rahimi is going to win this case if you listen to oral arguments. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm getting a little too deep into this one case, but that that's the biggest case currently on the docket um, at at the Supreme Court because it's what they decide and what they say in this case is going to shed light onto how to handle every gun case right. that's pending. That's why it matters, I guess I should, you know, it might not matter to your average person because you don't have a domestic violence restraining order taken out right. against you. But how the court works through whether or not these restraining orders, uh, the gun ban associated with them is constitutional, that will matter because that will right. have an effect on every other gun case. Uh, just because it's Second Amendment jurisprudence is so new. Right. It's weird to say that. Right. But it's so new that Bruin was like Rahimi is, I think, the sixth major, really just the sixth Second Amendment case they've ever taken. There was, you know, Miller. And then you went to Heller, McDonald. There was, uh, you could count Satano, which was the stun gun case uh, that most people have probably never heard of, but because uh, it was like a, wasn't even a major ruling. 
but it, uh, then you get Bruin, which was the fifth case, and now you have Rahimi. Um, and another thing about that, too, is so, so on one hand, there's not a lot to go off of for lower courts because right. you just have, I mean, they're really mostly just going off of two rulings, Heller and, and Bruin now. Yeah. And, uh, and so that leads to a lot of gray area that can be exploited one way or the other, depending on how a judge views these issues. Yeah. Right. You get totally different rulings, uh, on the same issue from lower court judges. And, um, so you're just going to, I think the court's going to have to flesh out more of their second, you know, more of the second amendment jurisprudence because you've got think of the first amendment, right? How many first amendment cases have the, the Supreme court decided over the years? Right. Hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're just going to have to take more of these cases. If they want to really actually get the lower courts to all have some sort of agreement on this issue. Um, and that's what, you know, they took Rahimi one year after taking Bruin. It was between Heller and Bruin. There was, it was like 14 years. Right. Right. So people complain a lot about that. And now uh, people are complaining that the Supreme Court's not immediately taking emergency action on a lot of these other <laughs> right. gun cases, which is, you know, maybe that's a fair complaint. But just remember where the, the, the trajectory of all this, they, they did at least take this case. And they very much alluded in this case in oral arguments to taking several more cases that are in line with this whole dangerousness question. Right. Because there's also a case called Range and a case called Daniels which deal with uh, felony convictions. So, you know, under federal law, if you're convicted of any felony at all, uh, even if you're convicted of a misdemeanor, there's something that's technically the state would call a misdemeanor, but, but you have the potential to serve jail time of more than a year, federal law calls that a felony and makes you a prohibited person. You can't own guns for the rest of your life. It's a total right. ban. And so there's two cases right now that the court... The DOJ actually has appealed these cases because they lost at the lower level. They lost in the Fifth Circuit, the Texas, the more conservative circuit, and the same place that Rahimi came from. And there, they were alluded to in this. There's one the range is about a guy who basically lied about his income so he could qualify for food stamps. Mm -hmm. this, this is a crime that you know is in the 90s, and it was um, a couple thousand dollars basically worth of food stamp fraud that this guy collected. Um, and so now he can't own guns for the rest of his life is, is the situation at hand. And this, but that's actually from the third circuit, that's from Pennsylvania. And, um, they, you know, that circuit ruled that the law as applied to him at least was unconstitutional. And so DOJ wants that to be heard. And then there's a, uh, uh a conviction, uh, of a man for ha possessing weed and a gun because um, as uh, you probably may have heard from the, the Hunter Biden situation, right. you cannot uh, be a drug user and own firearms at the same time. And this, uh, I think this has become increasingly uh, salient in American life, right? Because marijuana use has begun, become decriminalized in a lot of places. That's yeah, good. It's, it's approaching 30 states, yeah. Right, and so you have a lot of places where people probably don't even necessarily understand that you can't, uh, according to federal law, you actually can't be a, uh, a marijuana user even and own a firearm. Right. Um, you know, if you go and when you go to buy a gun, you read that background check, it'll tell you that explicitly mm -hmm. that it also applies to marijuana. But so that's, that's what that case is about. Uh, the lower court struck down his conviction 
as as not being in line with history and tradition. There were no, there there weren't these sort of uh, bans based on just the use of uh, intoxicating substances, right? Uh, there were bans on, you know, uh, for militia members having guns while they were drunk, right? Right, and it's, but that's a bit different, right, than a lifetime ban on somebody who has who has used marijuana. Uh, but anyway, so those two cases. DOJ wants the court to hear them, but they want to hear DOJ, of course, wants them to hear to decide on those cases in light of whatever they decide in Rahimi. Whereas some of the justices, and I think a lot of gun rights advocates, would like the court to take those up independently and have a full, full hearing on Range and Daniels. Um, and decide, you know, for instance, should not really the big question is should nonviolent felons be subject to that lifetime gun ban? Is that constitutional? Are there Second Amendment rights being violated by that federal prohibition? Uh, because you've had you've had even Supreme Court justices themselves come down on the other side of that question, that saying no, you know, the, this is not constitutional. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett had a, a when she was on the lower court, she was on the appeals court. She was she dissented in a case that dealt with nonviolent felons being prohibited and said that it wasn't in line with. Uh, the Second Amendment, and that was before Bruin. So, uh, you know, those are the, those are kind of the big Supreme Court cases that I think are in line to be taken up, or at least to where the court's going to make a decision on those three in some way. And they're all related, right? It's all sort of a dangerousness idea at play in each one of them. Right. Like, is the is the guy who lied to get food stamps actually a danger to himself or society? Um, and should you need to be a danger? to have a gun your gun rights taken away yeah absolutely you know i i wrote a piece kind of tongue-in-cheek a couple of weeks ago about how if republicans were smart they'd jump all over the the, the pro-gun side with the hunter biden defense <laughs> right try, yeah. try to move the ball forward that way but they you know partisanship that they'd never do it it is so ironic um maybe even less so from the republican side more from the democratic side right You're, we have this chance <laughs> that Joe Biden, that, that that U.S. v. Biden, which is the name of this case mm -hmm. involving Hunter Biden, and he is being charged under yeah. the same law that Daniels, that Daniels case I mentioned. It's the same idea. Uh, so it's the same issue at the core of this case. And so it could, in theory, you know, I, I don't know if this all works out with how, you know, Hunter Biden's thing is pretty recent. So whether his charges would get packaged together with something like Daniels. Right is I think probably doubtful. Like I don't think it, Hunter Biden's case is going to move fast enough to get to the Supreme court at the same time as, as the other marijuana or, or drug use case. Cause obviously Hunter is not accused of using marijuana. He's accused of, of using crack, which has sort of been um, uh, a bit of a dividing line in some of these lower court cases, or at least where judges have expressed concern about right. uh, some judges have upheld this, this prohibition uh, arguing that like drug users are, sort of um, comparing it to actually to uh, uh, age-based bans, saying that like they have a lower understanding of risk because they're high, essentially. Uh, it, there's been some interesting lower court rulings on this point. Um, but, you know, you could see a U.S. v. Biden Supreme Court case on the Second Amendment where <laughs> the Biden side is on both sides of the... I mean, yeah. technically... <laughs> Uh, Biden is on both sides of this case because the president is the one who runs the Department of Justice and he's the one prosecuting. That's the, the 
side prosecuting Hunter Biden. Right. And, uh, and Hunter Biden is using a Second Amendment defense in his case, <laughs> saying that this law is, uh, violates Hunter's gun rights. Right. Um, so pretty that that's pretty wild. And we yeah. could, you know, that case is going to move forward. It's I mean, I, I, I still feel like they're going to come to some sort of settlement. They will. They will. Because um, it's just they already had a settlement. It just was a very poorly concocted one. Yeah. Um, that made the judge really uncomfortable with the terms of it. And so and then when Hunter's side broke it off, the federal prosecutor responded in a way that you might expect a federal prosecutor <laughs> right. to respond, which is just like, fine, we're going to charge you with everything. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't want to take our deal, we're just going to bury you in 50 different charges for the same basic crime. Um, that's just basically the what thought of a thought of a case called USV Biden being used to overturn gun laws would just be yeah. hang it it's in the remarkable. Louvre, man. Hang, hang it in the Louvre. It is certainly remarkable. It's a certainly high drama kind of thing, especially because Hunter is going to be, He's got all these other legal issues too. And oh, yeah. so he'll be in the news and yeah, he could, he could realistically win. It's not even like a totally stunt argument, right? I yeah. mean, Daniel's yeah. won on that argument in the lower courts. Uh, and there's probably a pretty good constitutional argument under Bruin that the restriction is incompatible with the second. There was no, there's no laws at the founding that say, you can't own guns because you 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 like you drink or something, right? Yeah. That would be the com comparable thing, or opium or whatever drugs were were around in the 18th century um, or early 19th century. There, there, those laws just didn't exist. No. So um, you have to use now that Bruin has this whole section and that's really been at the crux of a lot of these fights, where it talks about you know reasoning by analogy. If there's some new um, the technological advancement that has complicated things that wouldn't have been, you know, wasn't around at the founding era. And, and it makes, you know, there's like the, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, like crack was not around in the founding right. era. So it maybe crack, uh, maybe these harder drugs pose some new societal threat. That's the argument you have to make to right. that, the, that the justice department will have to make. I mean, Hunter Biden also he he didn't do he didn't do himself any favors by admitting in his book <laughs> no. that he that he used to smoke crack every fifteen minutes or whatever it was. It's <laughs> very similar to Trump in my mind, where yeah. like it's like Trump's on tape saying, "I know, hey, look at these cl classified documents. Check these out. I could have I could have I could have declassified, but I didn't. And it's like it's isn't this cool? Like, We're gonna bomb Iran." Hunter's like, hey, I was doing crack all the time. You know that time where I bought the gun, that exact time period? Yeah, it might be hard. for. That's why a lot of these cases don't get prosecuted. Uh, they're, they're fairly rare as standalone cases because you have to prove that somebody was like continually using, that they were that they were a user of, that they were addicted to. And and often that's hard to do, right? Even he admitted if, to snorting Parmesan he, cheese off the floor. He was literally saying, I'm, "I'm in his book. He literally said he was using crack every 15 minutes at the time <laughs> period. He didn't have to do that. He went on a whole public tour, he did a media tour. So yeah, it was he, at that point you're kind of like, what is a prosecutor supposed to do? I know, I know. So there are states that are that are really swinging for the fences, even post Bruin. Um, yes, clearly yes. defying Bruin. Um, mm -hmm. specifically Hawaii and California. And can you talk us yep. through the status of what's going on in those two states? California's ban on, on carrying a handgun was shot down again, at least the last I 
I, I read of it. Um, so <laughs> what's going on there? Is the right to carry in California relatively safe for now or, or what's going to happen out there? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, right, that they, the brewing case practical effect was that it struck down a lot of these permit laws. The, the, the People could now get gun carry permits in some of these big states that had banned it. It, it kind of made it effectively impossible for most people to get them, you know, using this subjective system. Well, those states are still run by all the same people who don't want people to carry a gun. Right. And so their solution was to uh, enact what I've been calling brewing response laws, but they basically um, include sensitive places restrictions or what most people would call gun-free zones. Right. And because um, the Supreme Court in Bruin nodded at the idea that there are some sensitive places where you could prohibit guns that are, you know, this, there's a longstanding tradition of this, like courthouses or right. polling places or so forth. Um, you know, a few, they were making this point uh, to say that you can't just ban all of Manhattan because uh, there happens to be a lot of people there and they right. have a police force that's ostensibly dedicated to protecting the public. Um, and so they were saying, you know, look, you can't just say everything is a sensitive place was their point. But that's kind of what these states have done. You know, they've gone out and made just a myriad of new sensitive places uh, from basically anything you could think of. Banks, parks, um, amusement halls, right. <laughs> theaters, uh, all government buildings. Um, and and the biggest thing, they, the biggest one was uh, they actually swapped presumption uh, for for publicly accessible private property. So stores and restaurants and things like that, where they said, you know, it, now, you know, where most people live, and this has been the case everywhere, basically forever. <laughs> There's really no, uh, this is a completely novel concept, but traditionally, uh, if someone doesn't want you to carry in their store, they can post a sign that says no guns allowed, right? Right. And, uh, in fact, in some states, that sign doesn't even carry the force of law. You don't. There's no crime right. of carrying. You know, you, you get charged with trespassing if you refuse to leave if they figure out that you're carrying. You know that kind of thing. But um, these new laws have what at least gun rights activists are, have started calling uh, the a vampire provision, which is uh, where people cannot carry on publicly accessible private property unless they are explicitly invited onto that property. So it would be the opposite. They'd have to this the store would have to post a sign that says you can carry here. Right. Um, and, and so the effect of this, uh, especially in California, is a great example uh, because their their law went into place briefly, um, and we'll get a, a, explain that whole the whiplash situation going on out in California. But uh, their law, there's like 26 new gun-free zone areas uh, throughout the state. And and then they also have that, um, they also have that vampire provision. And so what this means in practice is that you really can't legally carry anywhere because. And they also ban it from parking lots, <laughs> attached to the sensitive places. So, you know, there's if there was a daycare center in a mall or something, you couldn't carry in the mall or or any of the sensitive place. Uh, and that would only and and the mall would if it doesn't post a sign that says you can carry there. You wouldn't be able to carry there. And, and so effectively, it just makes it like st streets and sidewalks, uh, not even all sidewalks, because some sidewalks are between 
parking and the facility. Right. So, uh, but it, really, it's an effective ban on gun carry. And that's what we saw in California. Uh, the law, now what happened there was the law got bl- uh, blocked as unconstitutional. Enforcement of the law was blocked as unconstitutional by a federal judge. And he blocked the whole thing, basically. Right. All the challenged portions of it, at least. Um, and then he didn't issue a stay on his ruling, which meant that, and he did it before the law was going to go into effect. The law went into, it was scheduled to go into effect January 1st, and this, this ruling happened in December. And so it was just going to keep the status quo effectively. Like all the other rules that they had before they passed this new law would still be in effect, but the new law wouldn't go into effect. So nothing would change on that front. Uh, Then that got appealed, of course, by California. And the, um, this is where it'll get really technical for a second. Uh, When you appeal something in the federal courts, uh, first you go to a panel of judges, three-judge panel in the appeal court, and then you can go, if you lose there, you can go to the full court in an en banc panel, and then you go to the Supreme Court, right? Well, between each of those steps, there's something called a motions panel mm-hmm. that's put together that kind of acts as like a middleman for, from the district court judge to the next panel, the next step of this process, and they just handle some of the motions, some of the requests from either side, uh, before the, the panel gets put together to handle the case. Um, and so that panel, the motions panel, issued a, a, an administrative stay on the lower court ruling and just a total stay. So none of it just reversed everything in practice. Right. And so that let the law go into effect for about a week um, because the the motions panel did that and then the merits panel we're not some of this stuff is opaque you don't know exactly what's going on uh when the when the merits panel was formed right might not have been formed until that you know later on um but so for about a week california had their effective ban on gun carry in place um and then the most then the merits panel the the group of judges who's actually going to hear this case uh, they they came in and reversed the stay altogether. So now the lower court ruling saying the the law can't be enforced is back back in place. And so in California right now, you can carry like you were carrying back in December, for instance. And so yeah, uh, it's been a bit of a whiplash thing there. Um, and it was only two judges of the three, and we don't know who they are yet. Right. Uh, as one of the judges wasn't able to sit for the consideration of that motion for some reason. I don't know. So there, there's a lot of little technical things there. But the practical effect is that you could carry in the, most of California before. Then for about a week, you couldn't really carry anywhere effectively. Yeah. And then now it's back to where it was before. And the next date in that trial is set for April. So it's probably not going to change. They could. I don't, I don't want to like... You might get another stay that comes out that's a partial stay or something like that. Right. Uh, I, I, it's not impossible. Uh, hopefully that won't happen because hopefully the judges understand how much whiplash this is putting on regular people, both on law, in law enforcement and just your average carrier. Because like we're constantly switching whether a carry is, is <laughs> perfectly legal or something you can be arrested and thrown in jail for. Um, that's not a, gra- a great way to run a state, presumably. Right. Um, and then in California, or sorry, in Hawaii, it's actually a worse situation 
they had a similar kind of law going to place, except that their law also changed the requirements for their purchase permits. Hawaii has purchase permits for every kind of gun. Right. So some, most states that have a purchase permit, it's only for like handguns, but Hawaii has it for everything. And the problem is that they changed their requirements for the training that you need to obtain before you can get one of these purchase permits. Uh, same and, and also a carry permit, but the purchase permit may be a little more immediate issue for most people there. Um, and so they have this new standard that you, that each county has to get its process up to. And the problem was that Honolulu, which is the largest county in Hawaii, and I think most of the other counties as well, didn't actually put a process in place by January 1st, which is when this new law goes into effect. Right. And so they had to stop issuing purchase permits two weeks before that because the purchase permits are good for two weeks. And they don't, I don't know why, the, the, this was their reason. They had to stop issuing those because they wouldn't be valid anymore once the new law went into place. And so, uh, and in Honolulu at least, they didn't have a hearing on the new training process because you, they need to certify trainers, right? They have to have a process for certifying the trainers before the trainers can teach the safety courses to the prospective buyers, right? right. And so this all takes time in real life. And the problem was Honolulu wasn't even going to have their hearing on what changes they wanted to make until January 9th. Um, and then it takes at least 10 days after that for it all to get certified. And so you can see there, if you stop issuing two weeks before January and you're not going to have your process done for uh, the safety training requirements until January 19th, you're kind of shutting off all gun sales yeah. for that entire period. Uh, so the, as far as I understand it right now, you cannot buy a gun legally in in Honolulu because you cannot obtain this this permit that's required to do it because there's they haven't certified the the safety course uh, they haven't certified the trainers to teach the course and then even after that of course the trainers actually have to teach the class right um, which is going to take you know whatever, however long that takes maybe at least a day right so uh, you know and the, that law has been challenged too they're actually likely to. The sensitive places aspect of that law has been challenged. This part is actually much harder to get at. Um, and I wrote about this a little bit at the reload because I think most people would hear that, right? Oh, that's like a month where they just ban gun sales. That's yeah. obviously unconstitutional, right? Like that, that has to conflict with the Second Amendment. And I think that's probably right. But the problem is it, it was more a result of negligence, I would say, right. than like they're not intending to cut off gun sales going forward. They just don't really care about actually getting the process in place quickly enough so that there's no disruption in gun sales. Right. Uh, and so it's harder to challenge that kind of thing in court because by the time you actually get to court, the issue is probably going to be resolved, um, especially when you're dealing with a relatively hostile circuit like right. the Ninth Circuit, uh, where a judge might be. I mean, judges are generally conservative in, in the sort of big C sense in that they're not eager to go and uh, disrupt whatever the duly elected government officials are doing at right. any given time. So they usually will give them some leeway to fix things before they start issuing orders and injunctions and stuff, unless it's unless it's clear they're going they're trying to persist in, in 
you know, an unconstitutional thing that they're doing. Does that, does that right. make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll so see. That's why I it's mean, hard to ch- challenge these kind of things. Right. And time will tell if, if there is that malicious intent or not, you know, if it is just negligence and they didn't have the processes in place and, and well, all that. You yeah. Know. And I think negligence is the right word. It's not like, it's more like they just don't, they understand that they should have done this faster. Right. But they don't care that much. Right. That people can't buy guns. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So they, a few, they, they understand they can't just ban everybody from owning guns forever, but they also just, it's not a big deal to them if, right. if it takes longer than it should for it to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a, a few quick, a quick items of note um, before I let you go, man. Um, I, this is expected. Uh, this isn't a surprise at all, but it's it's one of my favorite types of stories. You know, non-compliance. Um, I'm a big fan of non-compliance. In Illinois, citizens were supposed to register their rifles uh, with the state, and almost nobody did. I mean, I I think I read at the reload it was it was around one percent. Or, or something yes. like that. So yeah, what what's the latest out out of Illinois' failed apparently registration attempt? Yeah, so this is this is part of their the so-called assault weapons ban, right? And um, Illinois is interesting because we actually have a little more insight there than we normally would, right? Because oftentimes you're just dealing with oh, here's an estimate of how, what what people think the number of guns affected would be, and here's how many actually got registered. That's like if you remember the the pistol brace. Mm-hmm. registration uh, scheme from the ATF or l- last year, so, same sort of idea. Nobody knows how many pistol braces are out there, but there's right. estimates, and then we know how many got registered, and it was some small fraction of the number people think exist. Right. Um, you actually have a better understanding in Illinois because, because Illinois has what's sort of effectively a gun owner registration system, right? They have the the FOID cards, the firearm owner identification cards. So you know how many people own guns in in, uh, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we know how many people registered a gun under this, this, uh, this, this ban, which affects, keep in mind, this affects some of the most popular guns in the country, right? Right. AR-15s are the most popular rifle in the country. There's estimated to be something like 25 million uh, people who own them um, from the there's George uh, Washington University uh, survey back in 2021 that that asked this question. And so um, you can look at how many people registered them versus how many firearm owner there are in Illinois. And, yeah, it's about one point two percent. Now, look, not everybody who owns, who has a firearm or identification card probably owns these kinds of guns. But again, they are very popular guns and it, and it expands well beyond just AR-15s. Right? This law right. Can, applies to all sorts of different guns. Uh, so, you know, it gives you a pretty straightforward idea that there, this was not very successful. There also is some question that I and I don't have the answer to this. So, um just just to give everyone a heads up on this. But, you know, the, uh, the National Firearms Act, right, They re- it requires registration of all um, fully automatic weapons mm-hmm. in the United States, right? Uh, and new sales of fully automatic weapons in the United States have been banned since 1986. Under FOPA, there was an amendment uh, that banned new sales. But the number of machine guns of fully automatic weapons being registered keeps going up. Uh, in, and the reason for that is that law enforcement is not banned from owning them and has to register them. Right. And so th- there may be something going on there as well in, Al- in Illinois. I'm not as clear on whether or not 
uh, law enforcement has to register their so-called assault weapons. And so that, that the number may actually be even lower than it appears right. um, on first glance. So, but this is, as I think you alluded to, not an unexpected outcome. This is kind of what you see, especially in the United States, with registration and confiscation efforts. I mean, there was, uh, I mentioned the pistol brace uh, ban. There's also the SAFE Act in New York. There was estimated to be a similar uh, actual success rate of registration there. Um, you could look at uh, the New Jersey magazine ban when they lowered their limit from 15 to 10 a couple years back. Mm -hmm. That was actually confiscation. There, you weren't allowed to keep possession of those magazines. And the New Jersey State Police had exactly zero of them turned in right. during that time period. So, you know, look, there's other ways to – this is what you'll hear from a lot of these places. The ATF said this specifically in the pistol brace situation. There are other ways to comply other than registration or turn in with most of these laws. But um, my, I think there's pretty good reason to think that it's just a lot of mass noncompliance going on. Right. You love to see it. Um, in 2020 and 2021 specifically, we saw record-breaking gun sales, um, especially with with women, with minorities, specifically black Americans. And um, and more more than anything, the, the numbers of first-time gun buyers specifically in, in 2020 with all the rioting and the, the political unrest and, and, and what have you. Um, obviously, things... I think people, the entire entire country would have ran out of money if if we were buying guns at that clip. So it has slowed down <laughs> a bit. But uh, where are we at the end of of 2023? Where are we in terms of sales historically? Are we still like way ahead of pre, you know, 2019 pre pandemic pandemic levels, or are we kind of back to to pre 2020? We are still ahead of pre 2019 gun sales levels. And, uh, and I think what we're seeing now, especially at the end of 2023, is the realization of a new floor of demand for guns in the United States. Because what tends to happen with firearms uh, sales, with, with the market, is that you'll see big spikes in sales around events like you just described. So, sort of any time where uh, most Americans feel the need for self-protection you know, they go and buy a gun. It's a very straightforward idea, right? Um, and so anytime there's, it's you can really use it as a kind of chaos meter to some degree. Right. Um, uh, you know, and now sometimes it's, you know, fear of uh, new gun gun restrictions. Right. That, although usually that comes in the wake of some, some terrible act or some terrorism or mass shootings or something like that. But, but uh, yeah, so... What happens is you'll have this huge spike in demand, and then then there'll be uh, a recession in demand after that, right, for a while. Um, and traditionally, you've seen the spike in increase, spike in demand, then decrease. But the new floor where you level out after that decrease ends, it tends to be higher than the old peaks right. before the spike, if that makes sense. And it does appear to be that's what's happened here, because... What you saw at the end of 2023 was uh, Smith & Wesson turned its first uh, quarterly uh, sales increase in like eight quarters. Um, and then you got a bunch of uh, NICS reports, so National Institute of Criminal Background Check System. That's The FBI puts out numbers of how many background checks it ran mm -hmm. in a given time period, You know whether it's a month or 
or a quarter or a year or whatever. And uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the gun industry's trade group, there you know they represent all the makers and uh, and retailers for guns, uh, and they'll do an analysis of those NICS numbers because the NICS numbers by themselves, if you just look at the raw numbers, that includes a lot of other thing, other kinds of checks that aren't related to gun sales, mainly like permit checks and. Some states will recheck their people who have gun carry permits every single month, so it kind of distorts the raw numbers. But if you take the FBI also codes those, so you can you can look at just the ones that are sales related, and that's what the NSSF does, and they put out a report, and you can get an idea of where gun sales are from that. It doesn't capture every gun sale, obviously, because you got private sales that aren't subject to NICS checks. You got states where, you know, gun carry permits will exempt you from having to do a NICS check when you go to buy a gun. Um, you know, so it's, it's not a perfect measure, but it gives you a pretty good idea. And in 2023, overall, sales were down from 2022, 15.8 million, but still up from 2019. Uh, however, the end of the year, you saw three straight months of year-over-year -year increases in, in NICS checks, uh, in adjusted NICS checks. And, and so the last quarter of 2023 was actually up 4.6% over the last quarter of 2022 is wow. in terms of, of guns, uh, you know, effectively in terms of gun sales. So, you know, you're seeing that the industry kind of turn a corner there and demand is, you know, it just wasn't rad, you know, it wasn't back to the 2020 levels by any means, but it, it was still, here's where our new floor is. And it's right. likely that you're going to see continue you're going to continue to see an increase in demand through 2024 because election years also happen to spike uh, gun sales number. And this, the election we're going into here, like a lot of people <laughs> are, uh, one, you have the obvious gun policy issues where the president is running for re-election on a very uh, aggressive campaign for new gun restrictions, which tends to boost gun sales, right? Is, an assault weapons ban is actually his top policy. It seems like when he yeah. that's what he highlights the most. So, uh, you know that that especially if it starts to look like he's going to win re-election, that'll drive probably gun sales. Um, and then, and then obviously there's sort of, you know, Trump versus Biden again, uh, and the potential for whatever chaos or destabilization destabilization that could come from that uh, might may well drives gun sales too. Yeah, I mean, even if Trump wins, um, you know, people will go. He Trump makes everybody crazy, so the Democrats will yeah. riot in the streets again, and then people go buy more guns. You know, I, yeah. I or, definitely or he'll don't... lose, and his people will riot in the streets. <laughs> right. to, like to, to last, who knows? That's the thing. It's like you got a lot of people who can look at this election. This is why 2020 was such a big deal because you had a lot of people from a lot of different uh, backgrounds and political persuasions who looked at the situation and thought, this is a good reason for me right. to buy a gun. Yes. Like whether it was the shutdowns, uh, or George Floyd's murder or the riots that followed that mm -hmm. there was a lot of people who could look at those events and oh, yeah. all be from very different points of view and think I should get a gun for safety. And they are all correct. Yeah, <laughs> you, sure. you are all correct. My brother had legitimate sister. reasons. Yeah. And so Absolutely. you could see that again in this election too. Yeah where it depends on what your point of view is, you might want to buy a gun for a very different reason from somebody else who right. might want to buy a gun, but uh, that still leads to a lot of people wanting to buy guns. Without question. One more thing. One more. I know we're already a little over time, but uh, one more thing. And, and honestly, 
uh, you'll you'll be informing me as much as the audience too, because I have not really been paying attention to this because I personally I have no use for the NRA. <laughs> I kind of view them as as feckless losers that cave to the left. And I mean, shoot, if there's a Republican in office, they don't even really put up a fight on on gun uh, on on new gun laws, you know, most of the time. But um, Wayne Lapierre's out as the head of the NRA. Um, the NRA is in court. Um, so, you know, they, they, the NRA matters because they have been a staple in the, the gun community and in, in gun politics for generations. And they do give a lot of money to pro-gun causes and, and to help fight bad legislation and stuff. As feckless as they have been in recent years, they have done a lot of good um, over over the generations. So they, they do matter. Um, so with, with Wayne leaving... Um, this court case in New York, uh, what's going on with the NRA? What's it all going to look like in six months? Yeah, that's the big question. And I don't think anyone really knows what it's going to look like in six months. Um, I think a lot of it will come down to what happens in this corruption case. Uh, the, uh, you know, Letitia James, the attorney general there, Democrat, obviously does not like the NRA for political reasons. Um, she said she called them a terrorist organization when she was running for attorney general. Um, she wanted to dissolve them, wanted to shut down the organization altogether. But that the judge said that that's, that couldn't happen, that that would be really kind of go against the purpose of the lawsuit. This lawsuit is supposed to be kind of like a consumer protection thing. Right. Uh, if you, I think this is the right way to think about the idea of the lawsuit. So it's, it's not that, uh, you know, Wayne LaPierre wouldn't have to pay New York State restitution if, if he loses he'll have to pay the nra restitution because right. that's who he's accused of of basically diverting money from for his own personal expenses um and so the victims here are are meant to be the nra members who right because this was their money right that's a that's at play in all this and uh the judge seems to really understand that which is which i think is a positive and it's because he argued you know shutting down the organization doesn't benefit the members of that organization. Right. Right? It's it's uh, be the opposite, do them harm. Uh, at the same time, he said that the allegations of corruption were very serious, and that um, and so he's taking the whole thing very seriously, and it, which is I think a good sign because on one side you have Letitia James who has political reasons to not like the NRA, and on the other side you have the NRA, which is represented by. Um, uh, Bill Brewer who was making a lot of money off of his representation of the NRA, mm-hmm. who who people have accused of being more interested in in that and in protecting Wayne than in reforming the organization. Right. So, you know, how that all comes out over the course of this trial matters a lot because what could happen at the end of it, instead of being to shut down, is that uh, you know, Wayne Lapierre and, and other members of leadership could be bar be barred from working there or or at any nonprofit. In, in New York in the future and ordered to pay a bunch of money back to the NRA. But more importantly, uh, you could see an overseer put in place by the court to administer the NRA to ensure that it's uh, that it's these sorts of issues aren't happening again. And that's where you would see, I think, a bigger potential for internal change right. uh, at the NRA for reform of how they operate. Now, you know, I know, obviously, you know, you're, you're sort of talking about the everybody's more interested in the politics of the NRA, right, which right, this right. doesn't really isn't directly affected by any of this stuff. This is more about ethical management of the NRA, if right. that makes sense. Now, that could the thing is Wayne leaving uh, whether or not the court 
is the one that forces him and other members of leadership out, or if it's an internal power struggle because Wayne's gone anyway. And a lot of the, I think a lot of the dedication to keeping on this course has been due to personal loyalty to Wayne on the board. Right. They just don't really want to go against him because he's got this track record of growing the organization into this huge juggernaut that it, that it became. Um, and so a lot of, there's a lot of loyalty to that, uh, uh not unjustly necessarily, but, but it, it, but you know, that's what I think has kept them from changing course at all in some of the ways that they've operated the last five years, which has been hugely detrimental to the organization. I mean, it's oh. lost a million members. Yes. It's revenues are down by more than half since 2018. Uh, it, it really has, uh, shrunk, but, um, but I, I think it does matter a lot, probably more than a lot of gun rights advocates would seem to uh, admit, I think, because uh, the NRA as much it has lost a lot of, uh, of its uh, power and, and money. And, and that's and, and you've seen the rise of some of these other gun rights groups uh, who have increased in their membership and their revenue. But the, the gap between those two things is very large. The yeah. NRA has lost a lot more than those other groups have gained. Yep. And the NRA still remains bigger uh, at this point than all of those other groups combined. Yep. Uh, that people think miss the scale of the NRA and, and how much it does. Like it's not, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of other alternative groups that do really good legal work mm -hmm. uh, right now. That seems to be the hot, the hot thing to do, which makes sense to be fair. Yep. Like that's, the Bruin decision was handed down. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fertile ground for legal challenges at the moment, and and you've seen a lot of groups doing legitimate work to to uh, cultivate that. But you know the NRA does legal work. It was actually the one behind Bruin itself. Right. You know, it was right. one of their state affiliates uh, is the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. But also, you know, they do so many other things that nobody else really has come up to try and replace, like like state level um, lobbying, and they do all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, uh, national level lobbying as well. And they do that. They have the largest gun safety uh, operation in the country by far. Right. There's there's so much more to it than just the uh, the legal stuff. Right. And so uh, that that's that's um, that's, you know, the problem with trying to replace them is uh, that they just do so much more right. than people, I think, realize. And so they really are important going forward, uh, whether or not you agree with some of the right. their approach to politics. Right. And that's a perfectly fair thing right. to disagree with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much, man, for, for doing this. Yeah. Uh, hopefully I, I, I mentioned, I mentioned you before we started recording that I thought you were on the show about six months ago and it had been over a year and a half. So I, uh, working in politics, the, the years really fly by, but let's, uh, let's not take a year and a half next time. Let's get you back absolutely. on this year. Um, I really appreciate it. Where can everybody, uh, follow you online, find your work and become a member over at the reload. Yeah, yeah, the reload.com is the, the place to go for that. Uh, you can sign up for our free new, weekly newsletter. We don't, you know, cram your inbox with a hundred different emails. It's just one email a week. And of course, you can buy a membership too if you believe in sort of the reporting that I'm doing and uh, and, and you want to get access to hundreds of pieces of exclusive analysis that you can't find anywhere else as well. You also get our podcast uh, a day early. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of value, I think, in, in a reload membership. But yeah, head over to reload.com. That's where you can find it. 
Absolutely. Everybody follow Stephen. He's great. Everybody check out the Reload. Stephen and his team really are the best in the business, in my opinion. Um, that's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Thank you.